Lights up on a park bench. Lights up on a desk. Lights up. A podcast by the Ensemble Theatre of Chattanooga. Charlene Hong White from Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I'll be playing Bonnie. Scott Harrison from New York City, and I will be playing Father Time. SJ Lester in Chattanooga, and I will be playing Cupid. Lights up on Bonnie, alone outside a New Year's Eve party. Father Time appears. It's about time. Sorry, I'm very busy on New Year's Eve. All the time zones make me dizzy. Well, I've summoned you. Yes, nice to meet you. No, this is a court summons, Father Time. Open it. Bonnie hands Father Time an envelope. Section 8 of the Penal Code for Fanciful Beings states that you may be summoned to appear in court in witness whereof the parties hereunto have set their hands to the deeds herein before mentioned. Sorry, are those real words? I don't get it. If Party B, which is you, fails to remedy after receiving written notice from Party A, which is me, providing that Party A has complied with the terms of New Year's resolutions, then Party A may sue Party B for damages pursuant to the clause. Is there something else I can call you besides Party A? Bonnie. My name's Bonnie. Oh, I like that. You can just call me Time. Or Big T. Hmm. Father Time. Clause 7 states that New Year's resolutions are special, different from wishing on a star or when you blow out birthday candles. They're hopes and dreams for yourself, maybe even beyond yourself. Some people just forget about them. But not me. Mine's really important. And I'm not letting this year pass without it coming true. I just need more time. I get it. A year passes so quickly and never feels like enough. Most people want to eat healthier, learn a new skill, work less, and exercise more. All good stuff. Resolutions are one of the only things I like about my job, actually. What may I ask is yours? Real estate. I'm just about to close on a four-bed, three-and-a-half-bath updated craftsman with a new roof and huge yard right on the lake. Perfect for a family. Real estate. Don't look at me that way. It's my parents' house. It was. I'm selling it, or trying to, because it's the last thing left. The last thing to let go of. I'm sorry. Then help me. Whenever it gets close to selling, I always get scared and take it off the market. Like, like I'm letting them go too. But this year, I promised myself I would do it. That's a lot to accomplish with just three seconds left. Well, maybe you can turn back the clock a little? I know it feels like a big ask, but... Time stops for no one. But you literally just froze it. It's more like paused, really. I press the button. There's a pause button? We're very low-tech. Okay, then just hit the rewind button. I'm sorry, Bonnie, but there's no going backward. Ever. I don't think I even would if I could. Why? Because it's the one thing I've learned from this job. Not having do-overs makes everything we do now so much more important. All those unique moments, like right now, meeting you, 
And please don't take me to court. Courtrooms give me anxiety. I didn't think fanciful beings got anxiety. Santa's always jolly. He only works one day a year. Also, that red suit is very comfortable. Easter Bunny? Very happy. Again, only works one day. Also, it's physically impossible for bunnies to frown. Cupid? I'll give you that one. Officially works just one day, but there's a ton of overtime. Love's tricky. That's why I'm single. Me too. Love also gives me a ton of anxiety. Courtrooms and love, I guess. Also, spelling tests and crosswords. Anything scholastic. I always liked school, but was more of a drama kid. Am I babbling now? I'd love a piece of gum. My mouth's really dry all of a sudden. You're kind of a mess, aren't you? Well, for good reason. No one's ever happy with me. Do you know what it feels like to be in a job where everybody has a complaint, wants more and more from you, where everything you do is never enough? As an attorney, that's basically the job. I miss it. Well, I'm tired of all that. You know what? I'm done. Wait, you can't just quit. Can too. Stop acting like a child. You're in charge of time. And the more time passes, the more everyone's obsessed with it. Well, that's all anyone ever thinks about or ever wants from me. Well, this is what I think. The glue on that envelope is like... Cement. Mm, yeah. Maybe the paper was extra thick or something, too. You, you don't have to make me feel better. I think I kind of do. Are you crying? <coughs> Allergies. So, um, <clears throat> am I in trouble now? Tearing up legal documents isn't good. I could destroy you on the stand. <gasps> I don't do well with confrontation in general. Once I was falsely accused of stealing a pack of gum. I only confessed because I didn't want to seem rude. You're not at all what I expected. You mean, like, in a good way? <clears throat> Why'd you even take this job? I needed some time. Time to grieve something I lost. Someone, actually. Did it help? Not how I expected. <laughs> Isn't that always the way? It's... The surprises. Things you never planned that make it all worthwhile. I'm sorry I couldn't help you. I really am. Guess I'll save my resolution for next year. Or the year after that. Maybe never. Bonnie. I should get back to the party. And you should go too. I'm sure there's lots of other people trying to reach you tonight. Tons, actually. Not that I ever answer. Then why did you answer me? Goodbye. Bonnie starts to walk back inside the party. This is why there's no rewind button. If I knew I had dozens and dozens of chances to ask you in this moment, I'd never actually risk it. Ask me what? To ask you... To ask you what you meant before about uh, missing the things that attorneys do. 
it means I quit. My job turned from feisty depositions and court battles into just a lot of paperwork and sitting behind a desk. Quitting that place was my other resolution this year. <laughs> At least I kept that one. But I miss it. The fight. And you'd love my job. You really would. Hypothetically, I, I guess I would. Well, more than hypothetically. I, I mean, maybe it'd be a little unorthodox. It'd be impossible. Well, not necessarily. I only got hired because the guy before me just didn't show up one day. You can do that? High turnover with this job. And when no one's at the controls, everyone else starts having lots of deja vu. That's why so many TV shows feel the same. Mm, there really needs to be a better system of transition in your office. See? Great idea! You're already making positive changes. <laughs> and what? People are supposed to call me Father Time? How about Mother Time? Ms. Time. Gentlewoman Time. I think we're getting farther from the target. Title's negotiable. And you'll find yourself negotiating a lot, actually. It's perfect for you. But where would you go? I heard about a four-bed, three-and-a-half-bath updated craftsman with a new roof and huge yard right on the lake. Sounds like the perfect spot to me. It is. It's also not cheap. I have tons of money. Saved all my paychecks. You really don't need to buy much as a fanciful being. And make you pay the full asking price, too. Possibly more. Probably more. Consider it done. And see? Resolution resolved. With three seconds to spare. This is all happening a little fast. I just need some time to think. Speaking of time, the world's probably been on pause for too long now. Wanna start it back up for me? Like a trial run. Bonnie now makes time start. That was awesome. Almost electric. But just wait until you reset for daylight savings. What a rush. Bonnie and Father Time, listen. I suppose they're all making their own resolutions now. Mine's to be more honest. Bonnie, what I really wanted to ask you before was to stay out here with me for a little longer. Maybe a lot longer. Maybe we could even grab some food and... I'm starting a new job, remember? <laughs> and I'm buying a new house, but at least you'll always know where to find me now. We don't really even know each other. And we have all the time to find out. Cupid enters. Uh, not easy being Cupid either. Tons of overtime indeed. But wow, I do love this job. Lights. Humanities Tennessee is pleased to announce that the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga and the Lights Up Podcast are grant recipients to the Sustaining the Humanities through the American Rescue Plan grant program. A program made possible by the National Endowment for the Humanities as part of the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan Act of 2021, approved by the U.S. Congress and signed into law on March 11. 
Because of this program, Humanities Tennessee is able to provide $941,454 to 91 organizations throughout the state. The purpose of SHARP grants is to support jobs in the humanities, keep humanities organizations open, and assist the field in its response to and recovery from the needs created or exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. These grants may focus on humanities projects or leveraging operational support stemming from the devastating impact of the coronavirus pandemic. They may also help organizations plan for the future and begin the long process of response and recovery to the pandemic. ETC and the Lights Up podcast would like to thank Humanities Tennessee and the National Endowment for the Humanities for this amazing opportunity. Hello and welcome to season Four. Christy, can you believe it? Season four of Lights Up. No, if I'm honest, when we started this, I didn't necessarily envision it would, it would make it four seasons. I know that sounds terrible, but it was just a fun project that we started during quarantine. And now it's just so cool to see the community that's responded. And it's just, it's so exciting to be back here with you. Yeah, not in our wildest dreams did we think we would have four seasons of this. And, you know, we're adding video components this year, which really puts a lot of pressure on hair and makeup for us. But <laughs> um, yeah, I know selfishly, I'm so happy because, um, yes, I get to work with you. And we, we, Christina, you all know of our love affair if you've listened before. Um, but also, I just selfishly love doing this because we get to meet some really incredible artists and playwrights. And today we're kicking off season four. There's no maybe about it. We are definitely here with John Maybe, who is our playwright for Three Seconds to Midnight. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. I am so thrilled to be here and to be your first guest of the new season. It's quite the honor. Thank you. Well, welcome to the Lights Up family. We just had a chance to hear a, a live reading of your brilliant play. Absolutely. So we got to listen to Scott Harrison, S.J. Lester, and Charlene Hong-White, Bring Your Peace to Life, which was fabulous to listen to. So John, where, what part of the country are you joining us from? Yeah, I'm joining you from Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, wow. Awesome. So we are practically neighbors. So close to Chattanooga. Yes. That is fantastic. Close. I'm peeking at the amazing ceiling and wherever you are recording from. I was like so ready to ask too, because you have a really great background and it doesn't look like a Zoom background. <laughs> no. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. I, I think you could think it's a Zoom background, but it's it's my room. Um, we live in this beautiful part of the city called Grant Park. And it's uh, the most historic part of the city. So many uh, older homes, beautiful architecture. And uh, we bought this house about two years ago. And as soon as I saw the inside, I just fell in love. And this is the room that I write in because it inspires me. Yeah, I could totally see that. I mean, it looks like kind of antique designs. Um there's like ceiling tiles and the wainscoting and the, it's like, oh my gosh, it looks amazing. And you've got some great cabinetry. And um, so let's talk about Three Seconds to Midnight. Also, it's so funny you mentioned Scott returning Christy. And uh, I got a little chuckle because I'm a personal friend of Scott's that he has a background in law. So I loved this little um, nod to uh, being sued, suing father time, having Bonnie be a lawyer who was not, you know, fond of her job. And, and same thing, Scott has always been a, a an artist at heart and he went to law school, but now he is an actor in New York City. Um, so I love that little tie in. Um, but I'd love to hear where these characters came from for you. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Um, and I love to hear that he has this law background. That's perfect. Yeah. I love writing either really larger than life characters in very grounded situations or the opposite, very like, you know, grounded characters in these larger than life situations. And that pairing, I think for my style works really well. Uh, and in, in this case, I wanted to explore things like loss and um, death and longing and also a, a connection and a, a spark of something new uh, with uh, a character that was very larger than life. But I tried to make a very realistic and humble and what you would not expect from a fantastical character. Yeah, I, I liked that. Um, 
It's so funny because lawyers can be like super dramatic and larger than life. So you were saying saying that you were like inflating that probably wasn't too much work. Um, but it was Christy and I discussed the the play, and one thing we really hit on was you have these big themes of of loss and and loss both in in a job and family and love um, and and time. You know how we grapple with time as humans, not fantastical beings. Um, but then you gave us that spark of of hope there. And we both hit on how you took these serious themes and really gave it kind of a lightheartedness that was um, really palatable in a in a twelve page play. Um, was that part of your intention too? Did this come from a, a prompt, or did you know you were working with certain actors, or it was just this was something you wanted to tackle in this way for you? Yeah, it was absolutely wanting to tackle that sense of some heavy themes, but with, I think you can tackle heavy themes with a light touch and a sense of joy. Uh, Cause I think that's what life is. Even in my darkest times, I've, I've had these unexpected moments of laughter when I was really sad. And I love bringing those out in characters uh, in a, a way where I could sort of plot the moments to to really earn the laugh or the smile. Uh, Cause to me, that's very true to life. So give us a little bit of background on this piece. Like, where were you when you wrote it? Um, have you gotten to see it produced before? Uh, what was it like hearing it uh, versus getting to see it on its feet? Yeah, it, you know, when I first wrote it, which was um, about a couple years ago, I it wasn't for a specific prompt. It was something I just really wanted to write. It was, it was close to the holiday of New Year's, and uh, I wanted to write something about resolutions, but... Uh, a bit something a bit unexpected, and I thought, what must it be like to to be this character of Father Time and the responsibilities and the pressures of it? And what if it was very mundane that you just didn't like your job? I think fantastical characters can be very human too, and they get frustrated and they have to work overtime and they just don't like it. And I had the during the pandemic, I had the chance to see a theater in Las Vegas uh, shoot this uh, on film, but they did it with, I believe it was with two people who were a married couple. So they didn't have to quarantine separately. They were in the same household. Uh, just And to see it brought to life uh, in a filmed version was great. Uh, I've not seen it on stage. It was performed near me here in Atlanta, but it was at a festival that I couldn't get to. So uh, I, I really wanted to see it on stage and I just couldn't. But knowing that people did still made me happy. Uh, and now to hear it in an audio version, it brings out something new. It uh, There's something about certain lines hit me in a different way when I hear, when I can visualize what's going on in my head and I'm only hearing the words and it's just as powerful. God, I love hearing that. I, I'm always so curious with the playwright experiences, getting to hear their piece with, you know, denial of that, that visual. And I love hearing that you had that experience. That's wonderful. So many playwrights that we've spoken to have so many different approaches, but at the end of the day, you have what's in your mind and then the words and the words on the page are the only thing you can really give to everybody else. That's, that's concrete. Right. And, and so to just strip away what might've been in your mind and in somebody else's mind and to just hear the words I know is always really eye-opening for a lot of playwrights. Speaking of, of process, what is your process like? You talked about having kind of a dramatic dissonance of either grounded character and big moment or, you know, big character grounded, grounded moment. Um, what, what else do you start from? What else do you like? How do you thematically go about things? Give us an insight into John's process. I try to be very playful. Uh, when I started writing, I think I've always been writing stage plays in my own way, but I, I never, I, I wasn't submitting them. I wasn't sending them out, but I've always been writing. And when I started actually becoming more serious about the craft of playwriting, I was also doing improv on stage. And to me, improv, I thought it was something very lighthearted and just silly. And then I discovered improv can be storytelling. You could tell these long, beautiful, spontaneous stories, which is magical for... And so when I'm creating a new 
story for um, uh, the stage and I'm at my computer writing, I, I keep that sense of play. I'll get up out of my chair. I'll start physically moving around the room as a character. Uh, I'll start saying dialogue out loud. And I try to embody what these characters sound like and feel like and how they move. And then I'll go back to my computer and start writing. And for me, writing is a very physical process. I love that. I don't think, Chrissy, have we heard any other playwright describe their process that way? No, not that I can think of. I think that's a first, which is awesome. I mean, I I find that fantastic. Me too. And, And I think, I mean, I think once I heard a talk back when I was in graduate school and it was, um, I had Akhtar, the playwright, and he described how he would have a specific chair for each of his characters. And sometimes he would sit in the chair that he felt correlated with the character to get into their mindset. But I've never heard anyone actually up and physicalizing, which as an actor myself, a very physical actor, um, I love. I love that that's imbued in your words. And I'm also an improviser. Um, that really spoke to me in your process. And I'm sure we'll speak to a lot of other people because as I've been going through and learning this improv format, it's really opened my eyes to, to actually, you know, that we are then we are playwright, actor, director, all in one when you're improvising and, and how things can be created and how it can spring up from within you. And also when reacting to someone else and listening. And so, I just think that is so wonderful and unique to hear a a playwright who is sitting alone in his beautiful, wonderful, (laughs) creative house is also up like a mad person moving and talking and then sitting back down and going, I I just, I love how active that is. And it clearly comes out in the play that these characters, even if they're not moving a lot, are active, alive characters. I could tell your joy and passion for improv. I uh, And also, uh, as you're in New York, I did improv in New York for a couple of years, and I miss the culture of improv in that city because literally every night of the week, somewhere it's happening, and I miss that energy. So you've, you have, and you started to tell us about your process, but how did you come into theater? Were you an actor? You clearly were an improviser. Give us the the journey. What was your gateway drug into this mad, mad world? (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think like my very earliest like memory of of really writing was when I was young uh, and uh, I, I didn't know how to type yet. So, but my older sister did. And so I would sit at a chair and I would dictate like my, like my play to my sister and she would just sit there and type it out. And uh, she was actually a very skilled writer herself her entire life. And so as she was typing it out, she wouldn't necessarily type exactly what I was saying, but she would type out the version that sounded better. But then afterward I would read it and I would think, wow, I am amazing. I am so good at this. And so that's my earliest memory of attempting to write. Uh, and I think it's only later I figured out, wait, that's not at all what I said. <laughs> she was sneakily editing you. Yes, yes. Which is like the power of a good editor, right? <laughs> uh, and and then as I got older, uh, I, I I started, I didn't think I could pursue writing as a career. I just didn't know you could do that. I didn't know any writers. And so I pursued other areas of study. I went off to graduate school. I had a whole separate career in psychology and mental health counseling, uh, which in the end actually served me in my writing because that, that drew right back in, just like the improv. And it was only after uh, I moved overseas with my husband, we were living in London, and uh, I started looking at what mattered to me most in life, and that was theater. And so I started working at theaters. I got to know playwrights and directors and choreographers. I I learned what it meant to be front of house and to be in sales and to do all sorts of things you do in theater. I wanted to learn everything I could. And I started writing more and more and it just grew from there. That is awesome. I love hearing, hearing journeys like that and just seeing how every single piece matters to the whole, you know, it, it, yeah, that it all accumulates and almost compounds to exactly where you are now. So you have lived so many places, like exploring theater as a craft. Do you have any, do you have a favorite at all? 
you know, I've, well, when I lived overseas, it was in London and Amsterdam. And I think both those cities, they shaped me as a writer in very different ways, but really powerful ways. Um, when I was in London, uh, uh, and this actually ties back into improv, I went to this event where you meet other improvisers and you form a team on the night and you do a scene together as a group. And I thought, wow, I just moved here. This would be something great to meet people and to be playful. And I showed up at this event and I don't know if it was the fact that I was, a, I was the only American or, or that I was this outsider coming in, but people were a bit shy to let me into their groups. And every group I approached said, Oh, you know, sorry, we've already formed our group for the night. And, but and I couldn't find a group and I felt embarrassed. And my first instinct was to just go home and just say, you know, I tried, I'll try something else tomorrow. Uh, but I got the spark of courage and I went to the organizers and I said, I would love to do just uh, a solo piece. I'll just go on for a bit and just improvise a scene. And they were very confused. She's like, well, you're not with a team. And I said, you know, I, I've seen people do solo improv. I'll just give it a shot. I'll just do, I'll, I'll try something. Because I knew if I didn't, I would go home and I wouldn't have the courage yeah. to come back. So that night I did my very first solo improv. And I have to say, the audience was so generous and so giving and so loving. And they supported the heck out of me. And after that night, people were inviting me to do a solo set at their improv nights. I got invited into groups. And from that, I was just introduced to this creative community of improvisers and dancers and musicians. And my, the creative world just opened up to me. If that isn't a metaphor for um, standing up for your creative heart and soul and, and being a part of this life and this business, then I don't know what is, right? Because people are going to shut you out. People are going to be afraid. They're going to have their own things. And if you don't get that courage and lean into that, like, no, I love this. I want to do this and kind of stand up for yourself and say, no, I know it sounds weird, but let me do this. And you open the, these doors for yourself. I, I'm I'm getting goosebumps because I I don't even know you that well, but I want to say like I'm proud of you. I'm I'm proud of what that represents for artists to just advocate for yourself and and yeah, as a playwright, we often talk about how it's kind of a quote unquote lonely part of the process. Playwrights don't get to be in that big collaboration that the actors and the directors and maybe the designers are a part of. Um, so just for you to go on and be like, I'm going to solo improv and I'm going to be a part of this. And then that opened the door to collaboration for you is such an important story beyond your life. I think it's such a great metaphor for any of our listeners to say like, you don't need permission from anyone else to do this if you believe in yourself. And something you hit on that I think rarely gets hit on is that is I love what you said about the audience being so generous because when you as a performer are in need of an encouraging audience, you yourself, when you are an audience member, you become a better audience member. You learn how to encourage other performers in a way that you wish you had been when you were up there, when you, you know, when, you, when you're walking through a weird kind of like wilderness of like, is, is there anybody there? Um, so I love that you said that because just the the power of a present encouraging audience is so powerful when you are doing something as vulnerable and exposing as improv. So that I think, I think Dana and I are just like, Oh my gosh, you, I mean, I need more levels of that courage in my life of, okay, I don't care if I have a team. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna get up and do it. I appreciate that so much. Thank you. It's, you know, at different points, I think we all feel courage at different points in life and we all kind of like maybe retreat a bit at different points too. And I, I hearing this, thank you so much for that, that feedback. It was a moment that I'm so happy that I, I, in the spirit of improv that I just said, yes. And I engaged in this, uh, this, this art that I, I wasn't sure what was going to happen, but I just said yes to it. And um, I think it also speaks to how as artists, we're all 
expressing our vulnerabilities in different ways and the different forms of art that we create. And uh, as a playwright, I, I, I always feel that. I always feel so protective and vulnerable about my characters, even the characters that as I'm writing them, I'm saying to myself, I am so disappointed in you. I am so disappointed you're making this choice. I'm going to write it down because that's what happened. But I am so disappointed in you. I'm still so protective of them. I love that that so much. I can't even say. (laughs) Do you think that you have um, that sense also because of your background in mental health care? Is there that kind of more empathetic, open view to humanity because of what you've experienced through that? Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's such a great point. It's um, uh, what I'll do uh, with my my training as a counselor. I'll I'll bring in um, a clinical eye to you know if this character was in therapy, like what would be their presenting problem? Like why would they tell me they're coming to therapy, and what would actually be the real issue at hand? Because they're usually very different, and those make for great characters, especially if they don't know what they're trying to fix in their life or why. Uh, So that's what I really love figuring out. Like if they were in therapy with me, what's their presenting problem, but what's actually going on? Uh, How, like how might they be in a clinical way diagnosed, but even within like a diagnosis, there's, there's, there's such a spectrum of, uh, of how that presents. Uh, and I like figuring out, well, how would this character present with this issue? How would other characters react to them? And it's a, a little bit uh, of, a, of a funny process too, but I'll also engage in therapy sessions with my characters at different times, like just talking to them as if they're actually in the room with me. And, you know, maybe in a solo improv way, playing both roles and, and figuring out what's really going on with them so I can bring that back into the script in, in a, a way of, of subtext. Wow. And and that's just another kind of like dissonance you described. You like the dramatic dissonance of a character versus a setting and then that cognitive dissonance of like what I think my problem is and what my real problem is, um, which is the key to conflict and and good storytelling, right? Um, Do you have other examples of how that shows up other plays where you can think, oh yeah, that was a really great example of that I did that. Because clearly that's like a key to unlocking a story for you is finding that kind of. Oh, yes, actually. Um, thank you for asking that. It, it, it makes me think of a full length play I wrote called A Complicated Hope. And in that play, I'm there's a character uh, who's very present in the play, but who died by suicide uh, before the events of the play begin. And suicide is something that I treat very, very carefully. It's it's never a plot device. It's always um, treated with a great deal of respect. And I think it's for me personally, um, uh, someone close to me died of suicide, uh, died by suicide when I was very young. And, uh, that's happened, uh, again in my life. And, uh, it's something that in an academic way, I decided to study and to write papers about. And in a personal way, uh, different place of mind, especially a complicated hope, will look at it, but from different angles. Um, not necessarily the 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 life story of the person who died, but how it impacts everyone else and their own journeys in life. And uh, it, it, it's something that, in terms of my counseling and my academic side and my personal side, I'm always looking at from different angles and. When I think about why, it, I think it's because I write about the things that I'm still trying to figure out, and uh, to lose someone in that way, there's there's never a figuring out. There's there's never an answer, and there's just a, there's a a sense of how do I deal with this and move on with my own life, and I think that's why it's a theme I'll always come back to because. There's never an answer. And if there were, it'd be a different answer for every person and every family. I know. No, I think that's such a beautiful approach to such a heavy weighted, relevant 
I know very few people who aren't touched in one way or the other throughout their life with, with a heavy story um, that includes suicide. And it's just, I, I thank you for taking that approach and handling it the way that, the way that you did um, or that you do. Uh, you may have answered this question already, but um, one of the things Dana and I were both struck with was the the fantastic paradox between such a heavy topic like time. You can't pause it or rewind. You know, um, it's like that poem to the virgins to make much of time, um, you know, to to, you know, carpe diem, all that good stuff um, and treating it with such I just thought it was beautiful whimsy and seeing the room that you write in I'm like there's such a romantic whimsy in that room it makes perfect like it would it fits this piece so beautifully so I love seeing seeing the room that you write in was was there something specifically you wanted to explore with this piece in particular was there a story you wanted to tell were you just seeing where the characters took you um what what do you think was the heart of the inspiration of this romantic whimsy i i'm i'm going to hold on to that <laughs> and to keep that as i'm going to make a plaque of it for this room because i just love that descriptor yeah, it's amazing created a new genre time itself uh, for me was a very relevant theme as i was writing it uh i soon after lost my own father and it really made me think of time and the time we have left with someone and i think that's why uh one of the characters in this play is is in the process of uh, really saying goodbye to a house mm-hmm. but more importantly she's saying goodbye to the people who lived in that house and uh that's why it 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 means so much to her and i think that's what i was trying to get across that with time, there's a goodbye you can say to someone uh, or a goodbye that you're robbed of, that you never got to say, but you still get to say goodbye in your own time, in your own way later. Uh, and I think that goes back to many themes of, of how we lose people, that you can always say goodbye, even if it's just you alone in a room, you could still do that. And it could be argued with a fantastical character that uh, she's sort of like doing this in a way really with herself, it, whether or not you believe, you know, in fantastical characters. Uh, I do. I think that they're, they're out there and they just reveal themselves when they're ready. Uh, but that's what she was doing in this play. She was saying goodbye to something, but she was saying goodbye to something even bigger and, but in her own way on her own time. I love that. You saying that it's the, the, the words that sort of came to my mind immediately were how many times in my own life, what I needed to say goodbye to included that included the version of myself that existed then. And sometimes that's the hardest thing to let, to say goodbye to hardest thing to let die is that, is that piece of you, is that person that you were, you know, you almost feel like you don't care, you know, you don't carry it with you or, but I, lo- I loved what you just described. I, that was very, um, I don't know if that really resonated with me. Yeah. I'm like getting choked up because same, like I'm hearing you describe it back to Christy. Um, and, and personally for me, that was, I had something very similar happen in the past few months, you know, of, of saying goodbye to, to people and places and of, and a version of myself. And it was extremely difficult. Um, so to know that, that, um, that there are fantastical characters out there who could aid you doing that is like, that's the balm of theater. Right. And, and, you know, even that title of your full length play, a complicated hope, but, but you give us that hope. And I personally loved um, in the, in the theme and the genre of romantic, romantical whimsy. I almost saw the, the, the lights coming to close and then Cupid pops out at the end. And we kind of find out a little bit that it's almost Cupid's story, really. I love that you did that. When did that come to you? You know, I I don't always know my endings. And that's very purposeful for me, because I feel like if I know the ending as I'm writing, the audience probably does too. And so I love it when I can surprise myself. But as I was getting toward the end, I just 
I, I, in my head, I just, I saw Cupid there, not saying anything, but just present. And I'm like, he's been there for the entire, like Cupid's been there for the, this entire play. Cupid's always been there. Uh, and, and, and I, I really, and I really love how with this vert, with this production of this play, you get to do that. You get to visualize that light going in and then there's Cupid. And that's why I love this audio version because I think everyone listening can imagine their own staging of it. And I think that's a really powerful way to just see him there, yeah. to see them and, there. And to be like, oh, wait, this was actually Cupid's story all along, you know? And and now he's saying, I imagine that Cupid pre- was present the whole time. Part of my director brain is like, Hmm, how would how would I costume Cupid and maybe have them present in the background and then surprise like you know that's that's such a, a great way too. I I just yeah, I know we've latched onto this phrase now, but there's this whimsy in your writing that really leaves so much open to the creative mind, but you've clearly guided, right? There's a clear guidance in your words and in your staging, you know, you your few staging directions. That's it's so clear, and yet you do give this gift of like open interpretation to your actors, to your director. It's it's really really lovely, and I I just go back to hearing the little that we've heard about your background is that John, you strike me as someone who's truly an artist. You're not just a playwright. You are an artist who really understands and loves and is a part of theater. And that's this gift that you're giving over in this play. Thank you so much. Oh, wow. I, uh, I, I, did, I didn't think coming into this, I would, I would get uh, so choked up and moved by various things that are conversation. Thank you so much for saying all of that. And um, yeah, I, I really love the collaborative spirit. I, I've had some of the most amazing directors and dramaturgs and actors um and just the the joy of having them work on my words and for me to discover things about the world I created that I didn't know were there through that collaboration and I think it goes back to the spirit of improv as well I no one like you 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 can't do it all yourself you have to add what you can uh, say yes to it, add more information and let the next person add more to that. And it becomes this thing that no one could have done on their own. And that's what's so special because it happens in front of your eyes, you know? I did have a question and um, it's kind of a bit of a random one. So I'm sorry for the abrupt pivot, um, but it was specifically about um, how you came to know Lights Up. Or are there other playwrights that you've heard on Lights Up that you have that you have heard of before or that, you know, that are, you know, as contemporaries or how did you come to find out about us? Yes. Uh, so I've been a fan of your podcast. I think I've listened to every episode. Uh, I came to it later and then I just wanted to catch up and listen to everything. And uh, the very last one um, uh, was John Patrick Bray, uh, who is such a phenomenal playwright and uh i'm just in love with his with his work and his storytelling and we've never met in person but we're connected on social media so i feel like i i know him even though we've never been in the same room uh but i think that also speaks to like the the power of when you created this uh as we were all separate and 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 isolating and uh i like right now i feel like we're out to coffee together and i could just reach over and hug one of you and i think that's the the power of this kind of totally. theater oh my gosh i love that you listen so you kind of you kind of know christy and i then <laughs> Oh, I've been so excited for this interview. I'm like, I cannot wait to sit down. It's like, John, here are some notes. Do not squeal. Do not, do not just like, just play it very cool, John. Oh God, no, you're the opposite of cool. Oh my God. Thank you. That was very kind of you to say that. (laughs) And now we have to have an official meeting with you and John Patrick. My God, like. That would be amazing. Um, I know we're we're probably going to wrap up soon, but I did have one other question myself. And um, so we've heard you've done the one acts. We know you've written at least one full length. Um, is there a play or a piece? I won't even just say play. Maybe it's musical. Maybe it's a one person show. Is there something you're wanting to write that you haven't done yet? Is there a topic you want to tackle? It sounds like, you know, 
a lot of times people say write what you know, but for me, I feel like John writes um, what he wants to know. Love that. That's great. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This this actually feeds into to what I'm exploring now as a playwright, and it's writing more. Uh, and this is what I really want to see on stage: is writing more uh, gender diverse characters. Um, non-binary characters, uh, trans characters, characters um, uh, that reflect people in the world that are not there because of their identity, but they're inhabiting the world uh, because there's so many more stories to tell with these characters. And so um, I'm purposely now writing more plays where the casting is more specific for gender diversity because it reflects the world, it reflects life. And for too long, we've not seen these characters on stage. And so that's something that matters to me so profoundly and uh, that I'm writing more and more of now. I feel like I'm more confident and excited and able to write those characters now. I love that. That's something we're always searching to do here too at ETC. And we've been very proud of trying to open up our um, you know, cast of actors and our playwrights and so that's you know it's it's so many people are taking those steps in theater and we really need champions to keep moving forward with that because it's it is we don't need to see just a small slice of the world we need to see the whole world as it is well going into our wrap-up I'm kind of like excited and nervous because if you've listened to so much then you probably have had the experience where you're like okay when I'm asked these questions or if I ever get asked these questions this is how I'm gonna answer um, so drum roll, I'm, I'm excited and nervous to see, to see what you have. Are you, are you ready, Miss Dana? Is there anything else, any, and anything else that you would like to talk about, John, before we jump into that, we will give you a chance to, to tell our audience a little bit more about where they can find out about you. But Dana, did you have anything? No, I was just going to say, and this is probably, can, will be edited out and it's just basically for John, but, um, it's so funny you brought up, you know, more gender inclusivity in theater and um immediately in seeing your last name I was thought of a trans non-binary um performer and uh like I hate the word influencer but you know social media person who I follow a lot is maybe Burke and I don't know if you've heard of them or not but like they live in Philly um and uh it's M-A-Y-B-E Burke B-U-R-K-E, and they might be someone of interest for you to follow okay. on Instagram or TikTok. And you also, throughout this whole interview, um, give me the like pure, unadulterated joy and love and openness of, um, you have that same, that Dylan Mulvaney. I don't know if you know Dylan Mulvaney. Yes. Like you also just embody this like pure joy that she has. And so when you brought that up, I was like, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, I wonder if John knows about maybe and Dylan, um, just because it sounds like they would be in parallel to kind of, I follow people like that purposefully. I follow a lot of fat content creators. I follow a lot of BIPOC because I want to make sure that I'm hearing from those people. So that's kind of how I've come to it. Um, is through social media and following. So if you don't know any of the, um, if you don't know maybe or Dylan, I would highly recommend if you're exploring that in your work to follow them. I love that so much. And that really speaks to the, like the positive good of social media of, you know, there's, there's, there's dark sides to everything, but that's what I love about social media is uh, you can sort of curate in your own scroll Uh, uh, things that you want to learn more about and people you want to experience more of their, of their, their slice of life and who they are. Uh, I will definitely look up um, uh, Dylan. Yes, I follow, but maybe Burke, I will definitely look up. She does like, um, she does makeup tutorials, but she also does education and she was a performer in New York for a while here, but now she's in Philly. And anyway, that just you saying that sparked it in me. (laughs) So I wanted yeah. I love and, it. And Thank like you. Said, yeah. We usually give the playwrights a moment to say like what their social media handles are. If you have like a website or anything like that, we give, we give everyone a chance to kind of say out loud where our um, listeners can 
dig deeper into you and follow you more. Great. Yeah. Um, so I, I finally have a website. Uh, I, was, I was slow to get one, but I have one now and I, tr- and I, I update it a lot. And so uh, for things you want to find out about what's going on with me, uh, things that like uh, breaking news or just my list of plays and production photos, uh, it's all there. It's uh, maybeplays.com. So M-A-B-E-Y-P-L-A-Y-S.com. Awesome. Well, we'll have everybody check that out. Thank you. <laughs> we try not to use the word favorite, but it's hard to find an alternative word. Um, but at this at this point in time, the John right in front of us right now, do you have a specific word that you would consider that it, a word that you would have as a favorite or one that gives you a particular delight or interest right now? Complicated. Because I think, yeah, it could have like, it, it could have so many layers and meanings to and it's it. it's not necessarily negative. <laughs> yes. Your title, A Complicated Hope. I was like, that's a stunning title. I love it. So perfect. Yeah. I had, I had the same reaction. Okay. This one, I feel like maybe I'll know the answer, but um, I don't. But do you have a favorite or most cherished, beloved place or location? The desert. A desert in particular or just a, what's in your desert? Uh, My desert, the, well, cacti, of course, and the gravel, the sun, and there's a bird call that I don't know the bird, but it's specific to the Southwest uh, that I would hear as I was growing up. And the moment that I hear that, that bird call, it just, it just wraps me in a hug. Where did you grow up? Phoenix. Ah, okay. I, I grew up outside of Los Angeles. So um, oh. I'm, I, yes, those I, babies. <laughs> and I love the desert. There's, there's nothing like desert sunsets. In the world, they are the absolute best, and and even as the it, it's the tail end of the sunset, lights fading, you have the silhouette of cacti and mountains. There's nothing like it yeah, in the totally entire agree. world. My hundred percent. My college girlfriends and I went out to Santa Fe a couple of years ago. We always try and take a trip, and that was just like, oh my god, just. The, the place where we stayed, we could watch on the little balcony, the sunset. And like you said, the cactus and the going, oh, it was so it's talk about magical and whimsy. There's mm. something very like restorative. Yes. There's you like, the, it's not the word you said, but it's what I heard <laughs> is majestic. There's just something about it that you're just like in absolute awe of what's happening in such peace before you. Yeah. It's the most peaceful, awe-inspiring, slow process. I don't know. It's it's everything. And it makes me feel small in a good way. It just, it gives me perspective. Yes. Oh, yes. I love that. Okay. So the last question is, if, is there an item or a totem or something particularly precious to you? You know, the, the, house is burning and it's what you want to grab or or it's maybe it has a superstition for you or just something particularly sentimental oh wow um there's wow that's such a good question if that were happening and i were running from the house there there's there's a blanket in uh my bedroom that i've had that i it's it's not degraded in all the time it's been washed like it's still it's still perfectly intact that i've had since i was a kid and the blanket it's followed me around the world and it's lived everywhere i've lived and uh gosh i've 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 laughed with that blanket. I've, I've cried. I've literally cried into that blanket. I think I would, I would grab that. Absolutely. And I would take that with me. I love that. I love that. And, and that sounds, it sounds like your magical blanket. Like it hasn't aged, right? There's something so <laughs> truly magical about yeah. you. John, maybe. Thank you so much. This is the perfect way to kick off season four and we could not be happier and more grateful to have you join us. So thank you so much. (laughs) 
Lights Up is a podcast produced by the Ensemble Theatre of Chattanooga, a 501c3 nonprofit independent theatre company located in southeast Tennessee. Lights Up is hosted by Christy Gallo and Dana Colagiovanni. Sound by Eric Red Wyatt. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, copied, or presented without the expressed written consent of the Ensemble Theatre of Chattanooga. The plays presented on this podcast are protected by all national and international copyright laws. If you are interested in producing any of the plays featured on Lights Up, contact us and we will get you in touch with the playwright. If you would like your play considered for a future episode or would like to be an actor or a reader, please shoot us a message at lightsup at ensembletheaterofchattanooga.com. As a nonprofit, ATC relies on donations and the goodwill of patrons and supporters like you. If you would like to make a one-time donation to ETC, please visit our website for details. You can also support us by giving us a like and rating this podcast. 